The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. My name is Debbie Hopkins, and this is my granddaughter, Emily. Hi. This morning we are reading from Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection, like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we live, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives in God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ, to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Thank you. And have a great day. Amen. Thank you so much, Debbie, and uh, your granddaughter for reading the scripture to us. And thanks, Bob, too, for an update on the finances in our church family. I'd like to begin this morning in our message with uh, just one verse from Psalm 63. And this is a psalm of David when he was uh, in the wilderness. He, he said this, O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David was in a literal dry and weary land in the desert and the wilderness, but he's identifying here as well that his own spiritual life was in a dry and weary land as well. And I don't know about you, but um, I certainly find myself at times in a spiritually very dry and weary land. And uh, some of the studies that we've been doing in Romans have prompted me to look back in my life and pull out a box of journals just uh, this past week and um, look at some of the seasons of my life as I look back and I don't know if you journal or not, but uh, that's one of the benefits is that you get to, to look back and see where you were at. And I was led, because of some reading I did, I was led to, to pull out the journal that I was using 
19 years ago. And I'm going to be referring to that uh, in, my, in my message this morning. Actually, there were, when I started thinking about it, I could think of three times in my spiritual life and, and journey where um, I could say that whatever the dry and weary land is, it was the opposite. It was a rich and fertile land. Uh, there was one time, it was when I was in grade 11, and then there was another time when I had just started my pastoral ministry in northwestern Ontario, a place called Eagle River. And then there was another time 19 years ago, which I will tell you about later in my message. And uh, I hope that today as we open up the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will, will put his finger on what it is that might be holding you back from getting out of that dry and weary land and getting into the richness of God and our union with Christ. And so let us pray together for that before we begin the message. <clears throat> Father, our souls search for you, thirst for you. Our bodies long for you. Sometimes very much in a, an environment that is dry and weary and there is no water. And Lord, uh, we come to you just as we are this morning. We come to you as we are, and uh, we can't say that we're, we're, we're running on all cylinders, that we're, we're, we're thriving, perhaps. <clears throat> but we can say, God, I can say to you today, I'm, I'm thirsty for you. I hunger for you. I know that you are the only soul-satisfying place I can go. And so, Lord, would you be pleased today to just take what I share this morning and, and, and break it and open it up and, and feed all of us today and give us something, Lord, to pursue as we plan how it is that we're going to return to the oasis of your presence. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a story told of a time in the U.S. Civil War when a man by the name of George Wyatt was drawn by lot to go to the front lines of the battle. The problem was that he, had, he was married and he had six young children. And on hearing about this conscription, Another person, a younger man, by the name of Richard Pratt, offered to go in his place. He was actually accepted, joined the ranks, and he was bearing the name and number of George Wyatt. But before long, Pratt was killed in action. Later on, the authorities returned to draft George Wyatt again, but he protested, entering the plea that he had died in the person of Richard Pratt and when the authorities consulted their very own records, they found that George Wyatt had indeed died in the person of his substitute, Richard Pratt. Wyatt was legally exempted from any further service, for he had died in the person of his representative. Now this is an illustration of what Paul has been teaching in Romans chapter 5. Just as each one of us have been found guilty of sin in Adam, who is our representative head, and by virtue of relationship with Adam as our representative, we are subject to die. 
as in Adam all die. So also each one with genuine faith in Jesus Christ is counted forgiven and righteous because of our representative head, Jesus Christ. And we died in him, as him. And so therefore, we died in our representative head, Jesus Christ. Paul has right now introduced us to his favorite theme in all of his epistles. And no, it is not justification by faith, although that certainly looms large on his list of things he likes to talk about, but it is actually union with Christ. 164 times he uses this term, in Christ. This is his favorite theme, union with Christ. And we're going to be talking this morning about that theme as he unpacks it. In Colossians 1.26, Paul is the author, and he is talking about the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages, but has now been made known. What is the mystery? He says, well, the mystery is Christ in you, union with Jesus Christ. Many have called it mystical union with Christ. He is in me, and I am in him. It's hard to understand this mystical union. Last week, I asked you what question you would want to ask Jesus if you had the opportunity to sit with him for an hour. And uh, I think I'd like to add another question to my list. <laughs> I'd like to add the question, uh, what does this, uh, how does this mystical union work? Uh, how is it that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, and how can I possibly live my life in light of that truth and draw from that grace? That's a big question for me. I believe there's a lot more that we understand about these hard questions than we're giving ourselves credit for. I believe that there's a lot more that we can know about these hard questions, but they will not come to us with conventional knowledge. And this is the part that I want you to listen carefully on. They will not come to us, these answers to hard questions, with conventional knowledge. They will come to us through supernatural knowledge, through spiritual understanding. And I want to take a moment just at the beginning of this message to demonstrate that Paul believed this, and Paul wanted every Christian to believe this. So what does he say in Romans or in Colossians chapter 1, um, verse 9, for example? He says, we have not, not ceased to pray for you, asking, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge I want to tell you, there's not just the word knowledge here, which is word gnosis in, in Greek. It is epignosis. And it's a hard thing to translate. It's kind of knowledge upon. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not knowledge that you just get in the books, in the head. It's knowledge that's experienced and you learn it. So he says, we're praying for you and asking that you may be filled with knowledge, epignosis, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Later in chapter 2, verse 2, he writes again, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge, again, epignosis, of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want, you got some tough questions? All the answers, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, you'll find them in Jesus Christ. Your union with Christ is where you will find your answers to the hard questions that you face in faith, but you won't find them by conventional knowledge and understanding. You will find them by a spiritual understanding that you'll find in Christ. 
Likewise, in Ephesians 1.17, Paul, the author of all these epistles. Now, this is after talking about a hard question, the doctrine of election. What does Paul say in verse 17? Paul prays that God would give this, the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge, again, epigenosis, of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, not the eyes of your mind, the eyes of your heart enlightened. It would appear, it would appear that an experiential knowledge about our faith and salvation in Jesus is learned more in the heart than it is in the head. And it seems also that it is more prayed into people than it is taught into people. That's what I get from these passages that Paul is talking about. Maybe we don't pray enough about the hard questions because maybe we'd have more understanding if we did. And um, I I think it's similar to the words of of Jesus when he was talking to Nicodemus. I love the scripture in John 3.12. He says, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things. I think that's exactly what Paul, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying using the word epigenosis and so on, spiritual wisdom and understanding. The, if we can't understand earthly things with conventional knowledge, how shall we understand heavenly things with spiritual understanding and wisdom with apart from it? And so I, I believe that the believer's union with Christ falls under this category that you don't just teach it like I'm going to try in the pulpit here, that you must experience it to know it and understand it. And though it is true of every believer that every believer is united with Christ, it is not understood or experienced by every believer. In fact, I think that probably we only experience a small fraction of what God has for us in Christ. Just as each of the 12 tribes of Israel had varying degrees of success in going into the land of Canaan and and taking their portion of the land that was allotted to them, I believe also, so also, each of us as believers have varying degrees of success in driving out sin and in claiming the promises of God and in taking the land that God has given us in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. And so... Paul wants to talk about this secret of our union with Christ and teach us how to live it out. And this prompted me, this chapter 6, prompted me to to take out some books around that time I told you of 19 years ago and, and begin to look at what I was learning back in that time when I was, I was for a month and a half just in this rich spiritual place. And I can't go into details about telling you about it, but I can tell you that, that I journaled lots in those days, and I went back and read about that time. It was 19 years ago, and my wife and I and our family were in Costa Rica, and we were in the Language Institute learning Spanish, getting ready to go to Bolivia. This is what our family looked like back then. <laughs> Kids were a little younger. I guess I was too. And, uh, and Pat and I were getting ready to head off to Bolivia. And in this week, where I am right now with you, this week, April 25th, 19 years ago, this language institute that we attended had a spiritual life emphasis week. And they had brought into 
Costa Rica from the United States, a man by the name of Mark Calhoun and his ministry team from a group called Prayer Life Ministries. They had been praying for us for months by name. And so when they met us, they said, oh, you must be Terry, that sort of thing. They had a week of meetings for, for the entire week. They had a meet, meetings every, every evening. And we saw God do some really interesting stuff. I mean, people that were standing up and, and confessing sin and dealing with marriages being restored, uh, missionaries that were getting ready to go to the field who were in animosity with each other. We saw God heal those relationships. And in that week, on this very day, this is Sunday the 25th now, it was a Thursday back in 19 years ago, and I looked at my journal and I opened it up and I, I saw what I wrote in my journal of that day, and here's what I wrote. First thing on the page, preaching, he, it said, somebody preached it, preaching ought to come out of our hearts, not our heads. <laughs> I wrote that down in my journal. Preaching needs to come out of our hearts, not our heads. And, and, and this week, this is the stuff I'm studying. I thought God brought this together for a reason. I wish I could tell you more about uh, this, but you're, you're going to have to experience, aren't you? And so today as we look at the scriptures, let me move on to talk about one of the books I was reading at that time. There's a woman named Jessie Penn Lewis who was a Welsh Bible teacher back during the 19, early 1900s. She was part of the Welsh revival in 1904 and 5. She was later part of the Keswick movement. And in her memoirs, which I read 19 or 20 years ago, she had an epiphany in 1892 when she was studying the scripture that we're looking at today, Romans chapter 6, 1 to 14. She had a, a deeper epigenosis kind of experience of that knowledge, that experiential knowledge of what God is talking about when he says that we are united with Christ. And in that experience, she talks about uh, her, her, her experience, and then someone later on wrote about a convention that she taught at in 1903, and this is what this author writes. He or she said, two great truths were set forth among us. First, that Christ died for us. Second, that we identified with him in death. To thousands of Christians, the second point was an aspect of the work of Christ that had hitherto escaped their notice. Here was the secret of rest and power presented in a word. See, they, there were many Christians at the convention in 1903 that she was teaching at with other teachers, and this idea that they, were, that they were died in Christ, they knew that Christ died for them, but the idea that they had died in Christ, were buried with him, and so on, this was a brand new idea. Union with Christ was taught, and it opened up the doors for many people. Without an understanding of our oneness with Jesus Christ, I think that we live our Christian lives on half throttle at best. We live our lives on the lower grade power, reverting back to the old self energy to live the new self life. And it doesn't work, folks. If you will think about it, you already know it doesn't work. And so Paul begins in chapter 6, and he's going to unpack 
the mystery of union with Christ. But he starts by raising what many he anticipates is are objecting to what he has taught at the end of chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 20, he said that, that wherever sin abounded and got bigger, grace abounded all the more. And it's going to lead some of them, especially the Jewish believers at the Roman church, to think, well, this is, this is heresy. This cannot be. We should not be encouraging sin so that God's grace might abound. And so that's why he begins chapter 6, verse 1, by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can I, who died to sin, still live in it? He's going to talk about this theme twice in chapter 6. We're going to deal with the first one today and the second one next week. What shall we say to this? He says, shall we continue in sin? May it never be. And there's three key words that Paul is going to use through this text that I'm looking at that will form the basis of our outline. There's the word know, there's the word consider, and there was the word present. And every one of us needs to understand and know certain things. We need to consider or count certain things true, and we need to present certain things to God. So let's take a look at the argument that Paul has. First of all, I want to suggest to you that Paul teaches that a Godward life is united with Christ. And what does he mean? Well, he says three things about things we need to know in order to live a Godward life. First of all, we know, verse 3 to 4, we know that we were baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Paul wants us to know that we are united with Christ. Even as Kevin read Colossians 3 earlier, we are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his raised and new life. And this is not an exercise in pretend. This is not make-believe. Just pretend that you were cru crucified with Christ. This is not make-believe. Spiritually speaking, you were literally in Christ on the cross, in the grave, raised from the empty tomb, and now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How do I know that? How do you know it? Can't explain that. Epigenosis. Can't explain it. No conventional knowledge is going to give you that. Either you believe it or you don't believe it, it's true. And then, as we're going to talk about in a moment, you count on it being true, and then you present yourself as though it's true. Or you'll never learn it. That's it. And so Paul wants us to know that. Secondly, he wants us to know, verse 6, that we're, our old self was crucified so that we will not be slaves to sin. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to know that the intent of our union with Jesus Christ is not just that you can go to heaven one day, but that now you might be able to experience that you are no longer a slave to sin. You can have his new life in you which overcomes sin. And then thirdly, he wants you to know, verse 9, that you have been raised with Christ and you shall never die. Death no longer has lordship. The word dominion in your text is the idea of lordship. 
It will no longer be your Lord, death. Paul wants us to know that just like Christ, our new life is not only free from sin, but it's free from death. We are not subject to the jurisdiction of death any longer. The moment that this body wears out and you lay it in the grave, the moment the day of resurrection comes, you're going straight to glory. And just as death could not keep him hold, Jesus Christ in the tomb, up from the grave he arose, that's the same thing that's going to happen to you. Death no longer has jurisdiction over you. It's not your Lord anymore. That's the teaching that Paul is giving us here. Union with Christ. Everything that happened to Christ has happened to the believer who was in Christ and is in Christ. This is the mystical union of the follower of Jesus with Jesus. J.I. Packer says this, the entire order of salvation beginning with regeneration as its first stage is bound to the mystical union with Christ. There is no gift that has not been earned by Christ for the believer. And so Paul is saying that the way that God sees his son, he sees you. He sees you based on who you are in Christ, your new self. He judges you in everything he sees in you Everything that happened to Christ happened to you. I died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I have new life with Christ. I ascended with Christ. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, returns, guess what? You and I are going to appear with Christ in glory. It's a mystery. It's incredible. My existence is bound up with Jesus. These things are what God wants his followers to know. He wants you to know that you know that you know them. He wants you to be rooted in them. Regardless of how you feel, it's true of the believer. Regardless of how well the believer has lived his or her life. Regardless of how many past failures and sins haunt you. Regardless of how you perform or behave as a Christian. Regardless of your guilt or shame that you carry around daily. Regardless of the insecurities of your life and your fears. This is true of you, believer in Jesus Christ. It's objectively true. Subjectively, you're not experiencing what is objectively true. But it is true. And so, because it's true of Christ, it's true of you, and it could never not be true of Christ, so it can never not be true of you because you are in Christ. This is the mystical union. God has given us a picture of this in the Old Testament history. It's so wonderful that God doesn't just leave us to try and figure it out in some way in our brains. He's actually given us a picture of it. And you know the picture. It's the people of Israel who were for over 400 years slaves in Egypt. And then with a mighty arm and an outstretched arm, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God raised up a man called Moses. Moses goes back to Egypt and he leads the people of Israel out from slavery and leads them into a new life all the way toward the promised land. How did he do it? Well, the Bible tells us how he did it. He did it through death to their old life, symbolized in a baptism. A symbolism of baptism, a symbolism of death in their baptism that began a new life. So, so what God did was he, he severed 
the life of slavery for Israel with the Red Sea that they crossed through and they were baptized in the Red Sea as they went through and then they turned around and they watched Pharaoh and the Egyptians following them and they all drowned. And then they walked up the banks of the Red Sea on the other side and they started a brand new life. That's what your baptism was all about too, believer. And in your baptism, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you walked out of that water and you started your new life. And that's what we believe happened with the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10.1. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware. He's wanting some knowledge here again. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Just like you and I are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, and we go through that water, so also we begin a new life, and it's never going to be going back to slavery again. Oh, you can go back in your experience, but you're not a slave anymore. You're a set-free child of God. That's who you are. And he punctuates the whole experience with a baptism. That's why God calls us as believers in Jesus to be baptized in water. He punctuates it. The spiritual reality of union with Christ. He punctuates it with a baptism. If you haven't been baptized as a believer in water, you should come and be baptized to punctuate what God has already done in your life through Jesus. You died. You now live in Christ. Now I'll ask you a question. Why would anybody that has been set free from slavery ever want to go back to be a slave again? Can you imagine one of the Israelites, they just, they just crawl out of the Red Sea and they're on the other side and they're looking back and there's Pharaoh and there's a bunch of bodies floating down the Red Sea. And then he says, uh, one of them says, hey, hey, Moses, I want to go back. <laughs> it, we, we, it's hard to imagine. Well, maybe it's not hard to imagine because actually later on in Exodus, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Do you remember those stories? A few times they said, oh, I wish we could be back in Egypt. Well, sometimes, guess what? You and I as Christians want to go back too. Sometimes we want to go back and trade, trade the glory of this new relationship with Jesus with some of that stuff we had before we knew Jesus. We get lured into thinking it was so bad, it was maybe pretty good. Like Lazarus coming out of the grave and saying, I want to go back. <laughs> I know when you look at it, it looks stupid, but we're like that. We can be like that. I read a story about an eagle that was tethered. One of his feet was tethered to a post in the ground. and He couldn't do anything, but he could run around this post. An eagle! He could run around the post, and finally a new owner came, and he set him free. Cut the cord. Guess what the, guess what the eagle did? He ran around the post. That's what we can be like. We're so used to sin. It's so, so much a part of us that we don't realize we've got lift. We can live a different life according to our union with Christ, not according to the old self, but according to the new. So why would set-free sinners want to go back to sinning? Well, there are various reasons. 
And one of them is that's all you've known, perhaps. Another one is that, is that the wilderness can be scary, this Christian life thing, this standing out can be different, this tough road to the promised land, hard to enter. The suspension bridge of sanctification is a little scary sometimes. It's hard to believe, but ultimately, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why we go back to indulge in some of our former sinful pleasures. It's because we don't know what we need to know. And if we know it, we've either forgotten or we have not considered it true. That's leading to our next point. And that is, we need to live, to live a Godward life. We need to be dead to sin and alive to God. And uh, we need to count what we've heard and known to be true. By the way, I want you to know that up until verse 10, everything that Paul has said is descriptive. He has not told us to do anything except to know some things. It's all describing what we are like in Christ. And now starting in verse 11, it's starting to be prescriptive. He's telling you, you need to do something about this knowledge. And so he says in verse 11, 10 and 11, for, for the death he died, he died to sin. The, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not enough just to know some truths. If your Bible reading and study, if your preaching and learning is all about knowing in your head, but not counting it as true in your life and experience, then you are deceived. You will not live a Godward life, and you will not enjoy the benefits of union with Jesus. The word in verse 11, consider yourselves, is take it into account, come to the logical conclusion. It's rooted in this word logic. Paul used it in chapter 4 where Abraham, God did not count his sin against him but counted righteousness upon him. Now it's reversed. Now we're the ones that are counting God as true. And now we're saying, God, I'm going to live in light of this truth, this knowledge that you've given me, that I've died and I've got a new life to live in you. And the word logic means that when you, you add it all up, the logical next step is to entrust yourself to the Lord and present yourself to God. And that's the third point. The third point is that a Godward life is ruled by God as the reigning Lord. Once you know what you need to know and you count it as true, next you need to present your life to God in light of the truth. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Later on, we're going to be looking at chapter 12, verse 1, and he's going to use the same word. I urge you, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. This is the word present. It's an interesting word. It actually, it means to stand up close to. And the picture that is given here is that of soldiers that are presenting themselves to their general. And they're not just presenting themselves, the person, they're presenting their weapons as well. That's the picture that is given here. Present 
your members as instruments of righteousness, not unrighteousness. What are the members? Well, the members of your body, your mind, your heart, your, your hands, your feet, your sexuality, every aspect of your being. You present yourself to God, and in so doing, you're presenting every member of your body. Instead of it being used for unrighteousness when you were slaves to sin, now you present yourself to God and you present every aspect of yourself as members of righteousness. So how do we do that? And in the few minutes that we have, I want to talk about that. William Law in his book called A Serious Call to a Holy and Devout Life said that a lot of Christians don't change their behavior because they don't make a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're not very serious to change. And so... What could we plan? What could you plan in, in uh, thinking about how to experience a deeper intimacy in your union with Jesus and draw deeper from that grace, deepen the channel of grace that flows into you? And so I think it comes back to these three words in the application as we think about so what in this message. First of all, no. What is it that you know about your walk with Jesus? What is your relationship with Jesus? Do you need to correct your thinking in some way? Does your thinking and your knowing need updating because you haven't really understood some of these truths, even in a conventional way, much less a spiritual understanding way? And then what about counting on it. Now, this is the next step that if you really are convinced and you know something, are you going to count on it to be true? One of the things that studying a passage like Romans 6 and doing it well does to you is that it shows how independently we live our daily lives from Jesus. I mean, really. What studying union with Christ does to us is that it shows us that on an average day, we kind of are in the driver's seat. We're kind of living independent of Jesus. Now, in objective spiritual reality terms, you are united with Christ. But in actual subjective experiential day-by-day terms, you're, you're just driving the car, and he's in the back seat. And so one of the things that you need to do, the next step is this. You count on this. You bring everything to God and you present yourself, which is the third step. And what is it that you need to present? What are the can'ts of your life that you need to confront? Well, I can't, I can't rise any higher than this in my spiritual life. I, just, I can't overcome that sin. I can't forgive that person. Oh, I'll never get that relationship resolved. I, I can't. Well, what are the can'ts that you've got to confront? Well, you know what you need to do? You need to come before General Jesus. You need to present yourself, first of all, the new self, not the old one, new self, present him to God, and present the instruments, the members of your body. Present the cants. I mean, I encourage you, go outside some evening, stand in the open air before God, and present yourself to God. And present all the cants, present all the parts of your body and your life that you say, well, I'm not, I'm not enjoying victory in Jesus on that front. Well, just stand there and say, God, I give to you 
my children. I give to you my parenting. I give to you my marriage. I give to you my money, my business, my future. Invite Jesus into the intricacy. He wants to walk with you in every, every area. Get in the habit of presenting yourself to God. And then sometimes I want you to know that I experience this, and I tell you that I, when I sing some of the songs we worship with, I, I just say, God, I really want that, but I'm, I'm not there. I surrender all. The earlier song we sang, I surrender. It was all about surrender, and I, I was listening to those words and thinking, yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I come to this. F.B. Meyer is quoted to have said, I can't say I'm willing, Lord, but I'm willing to be made willing. <laughs> well, that's a step in the right direction. You may have heard me say that before, and I want you to know I didn't get it from F.B. Meyer. I got it from a guy named Reese Howells. This is another book that I was reading about 19 or 20 years ago during this time in my life. And uh, Norman Grubb wrote an autobiog- a biography about Reese Howells. He also lived around the time of the early 1900s, the same time that uh, Jesse Penn Lewis did. And this is what he writes. When he came to a point where the self, the old self, he, he, he knew it was already crucified with Christ, but he, he actually rendered it so, he counted it so, and he presented it so. And here's what he writes. He said, One, once more the question came. This is from the Holy Spirit. Are you willing? I wanted to do it, but I could not. How can self be willing to give up self? The Spirit spoke again. If you can't be willing, would you like me to help you? Are you willing to be made willing? That's where I first heard this idea of being willing to be made willing. And I want to ask you, if you're, if you're able in this moment to come to God, I want to lead you in prayer right now. I want you to, to, to come to God in prayer and to present yourself to God and to present the, the instruments of your life, the weapons of your life, the members of your body, the things of your life. I want you to present them to God as well the can'ts that you need to confront. Put a, put, a, put a finger on an area. Maybe the Holy Spirit has done that. And uh, I want to pray with you right now as the worship team comes after that and, and then we will <clears throat> conclude our service. James Stewart says the union with Christ is not something we have to achieve by effort. It is something we have to accept by faith. Will you accept it by faith? Let's pray. Father, right now as we just pause in this holy moment, um, just responding to the scripture, Lord, we're so weak, oh God, because why are we weak? We're so weak, Lord, because we're not drawing from the deep well of your strength and power, the union with Christ that we, we ought to enjoy because we already have it. Oh God, and we ask you would, you, would you help us? Lord, right now, we present ourselves to you, God. But we also want to present those areas to you. The members of our bodies, the things about us that, that we, we've, we've still been looking to the old self to, to fuel. And God, we want to present those areas to you that we are torn over, that we are having a hard time surrendering, yielding up to you. 
We just come and, and we're willing that you would make us willing, but sometimes we can't even, we, we want to let it go and then we want to grab it back. Father, we lift it up to you, that area. In the name of Jesus, we ask you to meet us. And with all the power of the risen Christ, Lord, we pray that you will come into our puny little feeble efforts to surrender our lives to you and that you'll meet us in this moment and you'll be pleased to raise us up and seat our, set our feet on higher ground, holy ground, and we'll walk with you, Jesus. We ask it for your glory and our good. Amen.